Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Coming to you from my house in Los Angeles, it's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm the co-host of Jordan Jesse Go here at Maximum Fun, and I'm also a comedy writer. I created the fiction podcast Bubble. I am really excited to be here. My guest Rob McElhaney created what is about to be the longest-running live-action sitcom in American history, ever. The name of the show is, of course, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, a sitcom about the misadventures of five truly awful but kind of lovable Philadelphians. And while the characters don't really grow or change as people, the show's grown in popularity with pretty much every season. So, how do you top that? Rob started this new show, Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet. It's a comedy set in a video game studio. The game they make, which is called Mythic Quest, is a wildly popular fantasy game. The only thing is, pretty much everyone at the studio hates each other. Rob plays Ian, the creative director. He's self-important and kind of insufferable. He has a carefully groomed beard and wears lots of rings, too. The cast and crew from the show recently teamed up to do a special quarantine edition, and it's really something. Let's take a listen to a little bit from the special. In this scene, Ian is on a call with Carol, played by comedian Naomi Paragon. Carol, who works in HR, has to relay some negative feedback from Ian's employees. I've received some reports about bizarre behavior. Well, it is the video game industry, Carol. There are a lot of nuts there, and they're probably ready to crack. Although, one person in particular that I'm worried about is Poppy. There's something going on there, I can tell. The reports have been about you. Ian, you can't send personal videos to your employees with the subject line, mandatory viewing. Well, those are meant to be inspiring. Really? Sometimes everything is wrong when the day is I'm showing people that we're all in this together and that everybody hurts. Ian, if you want to actually help people, you're going to have to make a sacrifice. Maybe give away some of that money you clearly have. Well, I'm happy to do it, but that's not what people want right now. They want hope because money is not that important. It is to people who don't have it. Rob McElhaney, uh, welcome to Bullseye. Uh, thank you for having me. So I want to start. Uh, I want. I, I want to introduce the audience to your uh, Mythic Quest character um, a little bit, and I think the best way to do that is to start by talking about his facial hair and fashion choices. Mm. Um, I would love to hear about the character in terms of his uh, crazy goatee and dozens of rings. Uh, w- what does that say about this guy? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure what it says. Um, I just noticed that as in doing my research of um, of a lot of the creative directors uh, in the industry, they they had a very common look. Uh, there was a lot of big, thick, bushy beards um, and a lot of jewelry. So I thought, well, that'd be fun. I'm always fascinated with the people that wear multiple rings on each hand. I just think it's a very specific fashion choice. And it's something that, you know, it's like your wedding ring, you keep, you put on and you kind of keep on and you don't really think about it. But the idea that I don't think people sleep with all those rings on. So I like the idea of thinking about those moments after they've taken a shower and they're getting ready for work and they decide to put on 
15 to 16 rings in the morning. I just, I'd like to know what's going through their head as they're doing it because I find it fascinating. Yeah. Talk about the, uh, the people you researched to prepare for this role. Well, uh, it, it started when I went up to Ubisoft, um, which is one of the biggest game developers in the world, and they have uh, a development studio up in Montreal. And to be honest with you, I wasn't 100% convinced that I wanted to do a series that took place in that world. They actually approached me because they were fans of Sonny. And they said, hey, we're looking to do something in this space. Would you be interested? And I, I just... I said, no, actually. And I kind of passed. And then they said, well, look, will you just take a trip with us up to the studio and meet some of the people because it's a really fascinating workplace environment. And, and when I did, and I got up there, I think it was about 15 minutes uh, into the, into the tour where I excused myself and I called Charlie and I said, Hey, I think we have a show. Um, Because it's just a fascinating environment. What did you see in those first 15 minutes that said, you know, we can make a comedy from a workplace where people are mainly sitting at computer terminals? Well, I saw passionate people, um, number one, and uh, people who who really, really cared about what they were doing. Um, And that's always a fun starting place because that uh, allows for conflict, uh, especially since everybody is there for the, for the same goal. They have a common goal, um, which is w- to make a, a game, a very specific game, and therefore they have a love of games. So everybody that's there have, has so much in common uh, insofar as they, they love video games, they love this particular game, this is the game that they're all working on. Uh, however, everybody has a different role. And um, there's so many different departments. It's, it's not unlike our industry where you have multiple departments coming together for, uh, under the same banner for the same common goal, yet everybody has different ideas uh, of how to achieve those goals. And nobody's right and everybody's right. <laughs> and especially if you have talented, driven people, you're going to have lots of opinions. And and the clash of those opinions is where you get the best work. And it's also where you get the conflict that drives the comedy. Uh, before you started making Mythic Quest, how much did you know about the world of, you know, gamers and video games and kind of all the stuff that's getting parodied in Mythic Quest? Nothing. Didn't even uh, didn't even play Street Fighter at a pizza place as a kid. Oh, oh, sure. No, of co- of course. I always I, I played games. Um, I played games my my whole life. I mean, we didn't have a Nintendo. We couldn't afford a Nintendo when I was a kid. But my neighbor had one. So I remember just coming home from school every day to play. You know, Mike Tyson's Punch Out and Legend of Zelda. And, uh, the classics, and, yes, and, of course, and Mario Brothers and Super Mario Two, and so like. And then as I grew older. Um, getting into PlayStation and, and and playing Resident Evil, you know, for four days straight. And, and so of course, that was like always been a part of my life, but I would never consider myself like a hardcore gamer. And I certainly didn't know anything about the development or making of the games. That is such an interesting observation. I'm sure as, as <laughs> we can all remember when we were kids, the neighbors that had the nicer video game collection, that is a very like I think that is a kind of a through line for people that are kind of around our age. Well, if you remember the original Legend of Zelda, the the uh, cartridge was gold. Oh and there yeah, was something sure. about like, whoa, man! Like you got gold, you got yeah. gold in your house. 
Like, I'm pretty sure we have like rats in our, in our house and you have, you've got like a piece of gold in your bedroom. You are rich. And you're not melting it down and selling it? What are you yeah. doing? Why are you still living in this row home in South Philadelphia? Like melt it down and go get a penthouse somewhere. So you mentioned earlier that you are making this show in conjunction with Ubisoft. And, you know, they are one of the most famous makers of video games. They make the Assassin's Creed games and all sorts of other, you know, things that are now staples of video gaming. Um, But the show does, like, look critically at a lot of aspects of the game industry. Um, And it's definitely, like, not always flattering. Like, you guys, you know, tackle some topics and you are, you know, uh, critical about the way the game industry operates. How do you balance kind of working with the industry, but also like pointing out some of its flaws? Well, that was something that was really important to us from the very beginning. And I, and I, and I asked Ubi, uh, and I said, look, if, if you want, if you want me to be a part of this, then, then we're going to have to look at uh, all aspects of the industry with a critical eye. And they said, of course, of course. And, you know, we, w- what's really been wonderful about them is that they recognize uh, the truth that is we have to stop pandering. We, we have to stop pretending that something is all good or all bad. We have to stop this very strange notion that if we're presenting something or somebody with flaws and honesty that it's going to detract from an overall macro message. And I, I actually think that that works to our disadvantage, uh, just as a as, as storyteller, certainly, because people can smell from a mile away. And I think it's clear that in the macro, this show is celebrating the gaming industry. And by far, that's the overwhelming response that we've gotten from everyone. Um, that this is something that is celebrating the industry with all of its triumph and all of its foibles because it's human beings and that's what human beings are. And if you present human beings as just being these, you know, stereotypes of heroes and villains, then people are going to smell it and they're going to turn it off. Is there something that you've tackled on the show that was kind of particularly difficult or kind of challenging to wrap your head around? Um, from, well, no, not really. I mean, I I would say with Sonny, (laughs) Sonny, we, we swim in very dangerous waters from time to time. Um, and I think we take real big risks with that show. Uh, although, um, you know, our heart, we believe that, that our heart is always in the right place. And we've made a lot of mistakes over the years in terms of, in terms of like how we approach certain subjects. And then we've over time tried to ameliorate some of those, but but like with Mythic Quest, to me, because of the nature of the show and the tone of the show and what we're going for, it doesn't feel to me as though we're wading in those same waters. Even though, I mean, honestly, sometimes it, what's really interesting is sometimes the writers on the show or the actors, are they'll, they'll be like, ooh, I, I, this is crazy. Are we, are we really going to say that? Or are we really going to get <laughs> into that? And like, I'm like, wait, what do you mean? And they're like, well, that's like, that, that 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 seems like really out out there and i'm like oh right like my my governor my internal barometer for like what's pushing the limits of 
what people will uh, accept uh, in a, in a comedy. It, it's just been like demolished by Sonny. Like I, I I feel like on Sunny we go so far, and that's the nature of the show. That sometimes I forget, like in a civilized, like if we're if we're if we have like if we're going for a certain audience, they are going to be clutching their pearls at, at at a place where I would have no idea what anybody's talking about. <laughs> Is, is is there something from Sunny? It's it's interesting that you mentioned, kind of now that the show's been going on for as long as it has, like you you have an opportunity to kind of like, you know, correct some things that you wish you had said differently or done differently. Um, can you think of any specific ways in which the show has done that? And 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 yeah, I just love to hear a little bit more about kind of looking at your past work and either revising it or commenting on it. Yeah. Well, one thing we, 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 we have a character um, that we introduced in the first season um, who is a, a transgender person and we were referring to her. And, and by the way, that we, we always went out of our way to make sure that it was very clear that um, we were always the bigots. We were always the, the transphobic people, the homophobic people, the racist people, the soci- because these people are sociopaths and that in the end they always lose. And that when we were presenting any characters, any characters really, but mostly characters from uh, marginalized groups, that the joke was never ever uh, on them and that we were like bullying uh, anybody, whether on the show uh, or or from the show's perspective on a macro level, that doesn't mean we didn't make mistakes along the way. Uh, it just means that from from my perspective, our heart was in the right place, but we were just ignorant about the specifics. And that's no excuse. Um, we needed to educate ourselves, and we didn't for various reasons. But over time, we started to recognize certain things. And I, and what one of the specifics was realizing that we were referring to her uh, with a word that we did not think was a slur that it turns out is and was. And there's just no excuse for that other than we were ignorant. So we we can't retroactively, nor should I think, nor, nor do I think we should retroactively go back and change anything. It is what it is and it was what it was. What we can do is as we move forward, and I think it was like, I don't know, five or six seasons ago, we started using... Um, the proper pronouns and the proper um, where it made sense, uh, and and the proper way to address um, that particular character, because there was a difference between the characters themselves using slurs and the intention behind it. Because again, these are homophobic, racist people, and th- and they're going to do that from time to time. But that it was understood that the filmmakers were not recognizing those words as appropriate to say. So those are like the lines that we're always kind of like making sure that we're crossing as characters to make a point because it is a satire, but not crossing those lines as filmmakers or as a show, because then you're not making any point. You're literally just making a show that's homophobic or racist. Or in this case, transphobic. More with Rob McElhaney in just a minute. Coming up, how do you make an episode of a TV comedy with everyone in quarantine? It's not easy. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. We've all made mistakes in book club, right? You drink a little too much, you don't actually read the book, and if you're under the bubble in Fairhaven, 
your individual will get subsumed by the collective. Hey, maybe I just let him go and whip us up some guac. We do not require guac. We require only nutrients and expansion. You will become Book Club. You will eat, pray, and love with us. Join Book Club. Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. Actress Tracy Ellis Ross is used to people talking about her age a lot. And she's okay with whatever people say. I'm 47 years old, and I'm the most comfortable in my skin I've ever been. When we go back to being 22, no thank you. The Blackish Star on Confronting an Ageist World. Listen and subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Rob McElhaney. He's, of course, the longtime star and co-creator of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which just got picked up for its 15th season. He also produced the show Mythic Quest, which is streaming now on Apple TV+. Let's get back to our interview. I would love to talk about the uh, quarantine episode of Mythic Quest uh, that is now available there on uh, Apple TV. Um, so talk about how this episode came together and kind of where you were in making the season when Safer at Home happened. Um, yeah, so we were we were in the middle of shooting the first episode of season two, and it was I believe it was a Wednesday, um, and and it was becoming clear uh, that uh, there that we were going to have to shut down at some point, even though that that was not the messaging we were hearing from our leadership. We still felt like um, this. Um, this was important and it felt like I, I can't, we had a, a scene on that Thursday that was supposed to, um, it was supposed to be in a theater where Ian and Poppy are addressing 2000 people. And we were going to have about, I don't know, 500 extras there or back 500 uh, background actors there. And I just thought that, well, that's just socially and ethically irresponsible. <laughs> so I'm making the call and we just, we just shut the whole thing down. So um, that was it. We went in, we went home thinking, okay, I guess, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll just wait it out and then we'll just return. Um, and obviously that's not what happened. So then as the months went by, we were just brainstorming on ways in which we could just get the crew paid for a few weeks. I mean, that's really what we were going for more than anything else, which was just get everybody paid. So how do we do that? And then uh, we just started brainstorming an idea that we, you know, we could do we could do an episode in quarantine. We had seen a couple of other shows that were doing it, and thought, all right, well, they're first, so so we have to make sure that we we want to do something that feels um, like of the show, and and also feels like you know we 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 elevated it and and could make sure that it felt like a premium episode of the show so that if you were to watch it, you know, five years from now, it wouldn't seem like we shot it in quarantine uh, and that we use this interface of the, of the telecommunications uh, device to, to, uh, as a creative choice, not as a limitation, not because it was a limitation. Um, I would love to hear about how you wrote the episode. I'm kind of assuming that like pre-quarantine Mythic Quest had, a, you know, a fairly typical what you think of when you think of a TV writer's room, you know, people around a table with whiteboards and 
LaCroix and things like that. Like, <laughs> how, 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 how was the writing of this one uh, different? Well, from conception to delivery, final delivery was was three weeks. So it was it, ha- it happened incredibly fast. Uh, once we got once I kind of pitched out to Apple what we were doing, we shot a little test uh, and then kind of proved to them that we could we could make this episode. Um, they gave us the green light, and we uh, we think we wrote it in three days, um, and that was over a Zoom call with. Um, my uh, other executive producers, David Hornsby and Megan Gans, and we were just on Zoom and uh, and broke the story. And then we each just uh, took a scene and went in order. And I think we executed the first pass of it that next day. And then um, and then the final script was executed the, the, the day after that. And then we just got to shooting. The episode is really like is very funny and very like packed with jokes. Like the show itself, uh, like Sunny, is very like joke intensive. Um, but um, as a, a mild spoiler, but um, in the in the episode, there's a really like quiet emotional scene, uh, and it really stands out. It's a really striking scene, uh, and you don't have to talk too much about what happens uh, in it. But I'd I'd love to hear about um, why you wanted to include a scene with that tone. And just in general, how do you approach injecting like genuine emotions into a very joke dense comedy? Well, when we were approaching this particular episode, we we thought at the very least we wanted to give people you know twenty five minutes of something that made them laugh and brought a little uh, joy into the world. But if if we could also possibly make people feel a little bit less alone and then end with optimism and triumph. That was sort of the, that was, that, that would be like the ultimate goal. So we had to come up with a a couple of different sequences to achieve that. And the jokes, the jokes are always like the easy part um, because we have a lot of funny people and a lot of funny actors. Um, But when you're, when you're navigating um, some of the more emotional stuff, especially when you're working with a very specific interface um, of, you know, zoom calls, essentially, uh, it gets a little bit, it gets a little bit trickier. And we knew that we knew that we wanted to be socially responsible, uh, and ethically responsible and not suggest, um, that it was just okay to, to, to break quarantine, um, and to approach that, uh, from a cavalier perspective, we wanted to make sure that if we were going to tell the story of someone breaking quarantine, it was for a very specific reason. And and that was that there was a character in crisis, um, a friend in crisis. And, you know, we all recognize that physical health is of paramount importance, but it shouldn't supersede mental health. And in in the story, there's somebody who's in real crisis. There's actually two, two people who are in real crisis. They're just handling it in different ways. Um, and one of them goes to the other one to do a to do a health check, a mental health check, to make sure that that one that person is is okay, and they're both struggling, but they both needed that moment, and and then they go back to their respective uh, homes and continue the quarantine. Yeah, I, something I think the episode does really well that you kind of um, touched on is like it is showing how different people are dealing with this very weird intense thing that's happening um like you know you have a a character with kids who are driving her crazy but you also have you know poppy who is like alone 
and you know she's a recent immigrant so her parents are in another country and i would just love to hear how you personally are dealing with this have you you know have you are you doing the quarantine hobbies of you know bread baking and starting a podcast or uh, are you coping in other ways yeah, I mean, look, this is something that we wanted to address in in the episode and and to make and just run at it head first, which is that, you know, I, I some of us and I'll speak for myself, I, I, I'm incredibly fortunate because uh, I've had a television series for the last 14 years and then and then this one um, that it, it it's afforded me. Um, you know, some, some luxuries that, that, that the vast majority of people don't have. And when you're in these kinds of circumstances, having a little bit uh, like more space, having a yard, having the kind of home um, that, that allows for us to, to be able to shelter in place and shelter at home um, in, in a more comfortable way manner right like that has allowed uh, and we're not and we obviously recognize that and 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 have a tremendous amount of gratitude for it and are respectful of the fact that not everybody is in that position and so i just thought you know as we were approaching this i'm like you know i'm going to be showing my house right like on on this television show and do i want to expose my level of privacy and what is that what is the message that i'm trying to send and what is that going to say and I think that we just decided to just go head first into it. And that if we could tell the story of someone who is very fortunate, but doesn't realize it, because that's what we've been seeing a lot of. I've, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people of great privilege and affluence complaining on social media, at least prior to the last few weeks, complaining about, you know, cleaning, having to clean their toilet. And I, I, I've like reached out to people like, yo, hey, shut the f- up. You know, like everybody cleans, everybody cleans their own toilet. Everybody, everybody in the world, except for one, uh, like 0.001% of the world cleans their own toilet. Do not complain about that. Shut the f- up. And I thought, wow, that's maybe that's a way in. Maybe this guy, right, like has all of this um privilege and and opportunity to actually experience this um in in a much easier way than everybody else and doesn't know it doesn't realize it and is just is just completely uh tone deaf as he as he talks to the to to his employees yeah i think the the clip we played to start the episode (laughs) has a really funny kind of parody of the inspirational social media stuff that celebrities have been doing. I think your character thinks he's helping the world by what, what song does he sing in that? Everybody hurts. Everybody hurts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, what is it like well, <laughs> seeing that stuff come out? And so it's, it's born out of, I mean, look, if you break it down, what the guy is saying is I'm trying to say, look, we're all in this together, right? Sure. So your heart is in the right place. Right. Like, of course, it's there's nothing there's nothing evil about about that. It's just it's just he's also doing it in conjunction with not really recognizing that. Yeah, everybody hurts, but you're hurting a little bit or maybe a lot (laughs) less than everybody else. So maybe uh, there are alternatives. And he just, you know, as a character is not really recognizing that and hasn't made 
a sacrifice, a true sacrifice. And that's kind of the journey he's on for the episode. I'm Jordan Morris. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is Rob McElhaney. So recently, I think that um, Always Sunny was named the longest running sitcom in American history. Um, did you know that milestone well, was coming I, it up? Wasn't, it wasn't named that. I mean, give us, a, <laughs> right. give us some credit. That's a fact. Sure. It, it is that. That's a straight yes. up fact. Yes. It was named that because it is that. Because it is that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it will be that. Yeah. Um, we were picked up for season 15, which once we shoot that, it will be the longest running um, sitcom, live action sitcom of all time. Yes. But there, of course, there's a caveat to that, that, you know, we don't like to talk about too much, which is back in the day, they were doing 22 to 25 episodes a season <laughs> right. of a show, which is infinitely uh, more uh, harder than doing 10, which is what we do. Um, that said, you know, we've been doing it a long time. Yeah, did you uh, yeah, how uh, how did it feel when that when you knew that was going to happen? I don't know that I really think about it in terms of like records or or whatever. I I just it's just fun. I love making it. I I love making it. I love that people um watch it. I, our audience grows every year and has since season four or something like that, season three, like it is, it has grown, it has grown. And I, I kind of can't believe that. It's just that it just continues to get exposed to more people through the various platforms. And, um, and our feeling is if we're still having fun, FX wants to keep making it, we can still stretch and grow creatively and do weird different things and not feel like we're just rehashing the same year after year and the audience is there and they still love it why would we ever stop doing it the characters on always sunny um don't don't change a lot they're you know they started the show as bad people and they are still bad people um is that a challenge or an asset when you're writing a new episode i would say it's an asset um because it allows for us to reset each individual episode and start from scratch and because they never learn or grow uh, or change in any way they're just basically just clay <laughs> and they will they will always at the end of every episode crush themselves back into whatever they've built up into another piece of clay to be molded again um, and then smashed again <laughs> at, at, at the end because they'll always <laughs> lose. They'll always lose. They have to lose. Otherwise, the show deviates from what um, we believe is like its, its touchstone. Um, and that's how we're able to address a lot of the things that we do. Um, and it's clear, I hope it's clear, that we as the filmmakers are changing and growing and learning and trying to be better and do better. And that the characters don't. And that allows us to have this sorry to keep using like mixed art metaphors, but like a, a new canvas each week that we can paint and then destroy and then paint and then destroy. Um, and it's just allowed us this, this, um, this opportunity to, 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 to do it for 15 years. I think we have, we have time for one more question. I just, maybe this is just a little bit more of an observation. Um, as someone who plays a lot of video games, what I, something I appreciate about mythic quest is that the, game that they're making looks fun like i want to play the game that they're making um and i think that's that's 
that's really important for its authenticity. Um, yeah, how much uh, how much time did you spend, you know, making sure that the game looks like a game? A lot, a lot. Yeah, we we really uh, we really I, I I knew that once we got into this world and agreed to do this show, that we needed it to feel authentic. Um, you know, I think everybody recognizes that nobody wants to see a show about actual video game development and the minutia of it on a day-to-day basis. It would just be tedious, to your point earlier, about like people staring at a screen. What we care about are human beings. But that said, and and their relationships, the power dynamics, working together, uh, all those relationships. But 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 that said, we know we knew that it needed to feel authentic, and that 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 people in the gaming industry would smell from a mile away. So how do we do that? Well, at every turn, we had as many um, people and members of the community come in to speak with us in the room and to consult with us. I mean, we even have people who have worked in the dev industry on the writing staff and people who work in the gaming industry on the writing staff. And we have a consultant with us every day, all day, to make sure that we're getting everything right. And I don't mean just like tech jargon, um, which again is just, that seems like surface level, Um, but really like culture, understanding like, ooh, this really wouldn't happen uh, in the way that you're portraying it, but uh, it would happen this way. And I think that's when something can really start to feel authentic, when it's not just, let's just use a bunch of buzzwords. We're we're really, what we're trying to do is make it feel like it feels every day at a dev studio. And so far, we've gotten a a really good response from that community. I'd love to hear a specific um, example of that, like how having someone in the room who has worked in that industry led to, you know, something you wouldn't have had in the show otherwise. Yeah, well, I mean, like the, the testers, for example. So there, there is a certain amount of stretch there. Like if you go to those rooms in the real dev studios, the, the testers, um, it's, not compl- it's not siloed in the exact way that we've siloed them in our office. And so, but I knew we wanted to have them nearby and we knew we wanted to make it clear that they are kind of in their own little box and own little world because that is what it feels like. Right. So that would be an example of like having the consultant there, even as we're constructing the sets and say, look, I know that this isn't, I know that this isn't technically accurate, but will it resonate as true? Like that's what's important, right? When you're, when you're building a story is like, it's all fake and made up, but is this going to resonate as or resonate as truth? And the consultant uh, said, I believe this will resonate as truth. These people are siloed away. Yes, it's not technically in a box right in the middle of a bullpen of an office. But that being said, it creates the feeling of what the environment uh, really truly is. And that's what we're trying to extend throughout the entire process. Uh, Well, Rob, uh, thanks so much for talking with us here on Bullseye. Thank you for having me and uh, for your support. Really appreciate it. Rob McElhaney, Mythic Quest is now streaming on Apple TV+. You can watch the first season there along with the quarantine special. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around the greater Los Angeles area, where there is a guy on my street now that I see when I'm out taking a walk who 
is a very handsome man who also is constantly juggling. Um, he's just a delight to see. Um, and I don't know his name, but I call him Juggle Hunk. And uh, yeah, I guess I just never thought that jugglers could be so attractive. You learn something new every day. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.